Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, you'll look at your text. It's printed there for you in the bulletins on page 13 and 14. I've taken as the main body of my text, John chapter 10. Uh, but I've also given uh, uh, the first four verses from chapter 1, and I'm also going to quote a verse from chapter 14. Due to the length of the service, I'm not going to read the entirety of what's before us, but I will read that, those two verses that I'm really going to focus on, uh, and then as we unpack them, a few other verses. Uh, first, here, verse 4 from chapter 1. In Him, and who is the Him? He's the eternal Logos. He is the Word of the living God. He is God the Son, who takes on human flesh. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. If you move then to John chapter 14, you don't have to turn. You know this verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by or through me. And now give your attention to chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. Divisions, divisions, divisions. All around you look, there are divisions. This is a world of division. And I'm not necessarily speaking of our day and time in this world. Although, as you know, our day and time is full of division. I'm 55, and I think in my 55 years, I don't know if I have been aware of a more divisive time in this country than I'm experiencing. Now, I'm sure there were, and I know there have been divisive times, much more divisive times in uh, the centuries and the the years uh, before now in our country. But I'm not really talking about now, and I'm not really talking about our country. The divisions I'm talking about this morning are the divisions of the time and the culture and the place in which the eternal Son of God took on flesh and entered in to space and time. It was a time of great, great division. 
And those divisions are the context of our text. And they are the context of the New Testament. And let me just tick off several of them for you. There's, first of all, there's this great and huge, what I might call ethnic division, that always was in the mind of the Jews of Jesus' day. And that ethnic division was between Jew and Gentile. And that division underlies so much of what we read in the New Testament. You really, in one sense, can't understand the New Testament if you don't pay attention to that strong division. Jew, Gentile. Jew, Gentile. We might have some inkling of it with our own racial tensions in our country. But it's much more profound than that because it was ethnic and religious. That's the first major division. That's the context of our text. The second one is that there were regional divisions as well. You know, we think it's bad between the North and the South and the United States. I mean, it was really bad in Israel. Your cosmopolitan inhabitants of Jerusalem and those in the surrounding area of Judea looked down upon the rubes of the rural north. I mean, we saw that, didn't we, in the passage from the gospel that we read. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That, that rural town up in the north, the country? And, and when Nicodemus, at one point in the Gospel of John, comes to Jesus' defense, the Pharisees, if they really wanted to get a dig in, they got this sort of dig in. They said, are you Nicodemus from Galilee too? So there were these regional differences. The third major division was that there was the ever-present socioeconomic divisions within their culture. We find them in every culture and every time. Your cosmopolitan Jew could walk the streets of Jerusalem and could walk by beggar after beggar after beggar and not even blink an eye and not even pause. And fourth, like in our day and virtually every day, there were political divisions. Imagine that. Political parties, political divisions, and they took on religious connotations, but they were also political. They had their anti-government zealots ready to, to enter into insurrection, ready for coups, ready to overthrow the government. They had their zealots who hated Rome and wanted to undermine it. But they also, in our language today, they had their government swamp uh, creatures. They had those, uh, those who were government sellouts. The Herodians. Let's just make the, let's make the Romans happy and let's make a little bit of money uh, by making them happy. They had their political divisions. And we add one more for good measure, they had their religious divisions too. There were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes, there were the Pharisees, and those were just a few. There were more. And then there was this small band of followers of this new rabbi, this new teacher, this new guy on the scene, Jesus. And all these divisions are the backdrop of our text today. They, they, they are really always at the backdrop of our gospel accounts. The world in which Jesus took on flesh was that world, a world that was filled with conflict and division. 
It was just chock full of it. And so far from being irrelevant to our circumstances today, uh, to our present spirit of the age, it's spot on relevant. For instance, hear these words once again, verses 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, you'll be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes, and he's looking at Pharisees as he says this. He's looking at these others. These others who were about themselves or about their party or about this or that, and they weren't really about Yahweh. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We might add to, to that today, and I don't want to add to Scripture, but to illustrate, uh, the thief comes to get clicks. Website clicks. Where they make their money. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I mean, who of us doesn't want the contentedness, the, the overflowing surplus sort of life that Jesus speaks of here? Especially in our plague-ridden and in our, in our uh, division-ridden 2021. Now, brothers and sisters, I hope you know there is so much in this text. We can't unpack it, and I know what time it is. We can't unpack it in the minutes that we have. Uh, I, I told the, the, the uh, group this morning at 9, I said this was actually the text that I preached from when I candidated here at Huntersville in 2011, when I first time I stood behind this pulpit. I'm coming back to that same text. But I'm not going to preach you the same message, because this text has all kinds of wonderful truths uh, I was looking at uh, James Montgomery Boyce's um, volumes, his sermons through the Gospel of John, and I was, I was interested to see how many sermons he preached on this text. Six. Six. I'm not going to give you six, but I am going to give you the second one. And the second one is I, I do want us to focus on nine and ten. And I want us to come to these two verses and ask ourselves questions to unpack them. First question is this. What's Jesus talking about? When he talks about the abundant life, now that, this verse has gotten somewhat popular uh, over the past couple of decades. But what does he really mean when he says, I came, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize life, human life, is a divine gift. It comes from God, right? We live and move and have our being. In God. God is the source of life. From Genesis chapter 1 uh, to, to our day and to the day when Christ returns, Jesus is the giver of life. God is the giver of life. All human physical life is a gift from God. Jesus means that, but He means more than that. Jesus is talking, I think, at least implying something about physical life. True, but He's, not, he's talking about more than physical life, but not less. More than physical life, but not less. The words he chooses, he, and we have it rendered, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now that word abundantly, that English word, is a translation of a Latin word. Okay, it's, a, it's just taking Latin and bringing it into English with some modification. And the Latin has basically two ideas. Uh, imagine yourself on the beach. 
and you watch wave after wave after wave after wave crashing on the sand. It doesn't stop, does it? The waves don't stop. That's the idea of this life. It just keeps coming. God keeps giving. Jesus keeps giving this life again and again and again and again with no interruption. The other image is the image of a, of a river that floods. And the water overflows its banks. And that's the sort of image that Jesus wants us to have about the life that he brings. It's something that overflows. But our English word is, uh, it comes to us from the Latin, but the word of John chapter 10 in the original was a Greek word. And that Greek word has a uh, mathematical, uh, mathematical meaning. It's basically the idea of overage or surplus. You're counting up all the stores that you have and, 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 and what you need, and you've got a surplus. Oh, it's the same word that's used when Jesus feeds the 5,000. 5,000 men, more than that, right? If you count the women and children. And we're told after, after he feeds them, they came back and they collected what? Baskets full of, of bread. A fish. There was, there was so much more. There was a surplus. This is the idea. If you're going to somebody, a friend's home, and they've invited you to dinner, and they say, just sit down, put your, put your feet under the table. We're going to serve you. And they bring first this wonderful appetizer. And then they bring this wonderful soup. And then they bring this wonderful salad. And then they bring this first course. And then they bring another course. And then they bring another course. And it's all fantastic. And they refill your glass. And they keep refilling your glass. And it's just, wow. It just keeps coming. It's, it's, it's more, really, than you can ever handle. Uh, there's a wonderful word. I love it. Uh, satiated. You're satiated. You're full. You have, and we've got this thing in the Sheldon household, we say we've got an elegant sufficiency when we're full. We've got an elegant sufficiency. To, to, to eat anymore will be superfluous. We, we've got all that we need and more. That's the idea. That's the idea Jesus is meaning to convey to us. What is this life? It's the contented life. It's the life of spiritually resting in a perfect Savior. I, I think when we read John chapter 10, we always need to have in the back of our minds Psalm 23. Jesus says here in John 10 that He's what? The Good Shepherd. Go back to Psalm 23. How does Psalm 23 begin? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, when you're a child, you thought, I want Jesus, I want God. It's, it's, and, 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 and somebody had to explain to you, that's not what it's talking about. When, he, when we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not I want, it means that you won't have any needs. You won't, you won't lack for anything that you really need. God's going to provide everything you need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, many of you have probably read that old Philip Keller book, little book. It's, it was great when it was written. It's great today. A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. 
And you know, Philip Keller was a, a shepherd. He had that experience. He knew what he was talking about. And he said, it is incredibly hard to get sheep to lie down. He said, it's just tough. He said, you basically have to make sure they have four things. First of all, sheep won't lie down if they sense or if they think with their sheep minds that there might be predators out there, that there might be wolves out there. He said sheep also, they're, they're in flocks, right? And they're somewhat social for the most part. And they also won't lie down if they sense tension within the flock. It keeps them agitated. So they have to be freed from that tension. He said they also won't lie down if they're being bugged by bugs. Lots of flies and gnats and stuff like that just aggravates them, aggravates them. And they won't lie down, they just keep moving. He said, so you've got to free them from those aggravations. And he said they also won't lie down if they're hungry because they're going to keep grazing, grazing, grazing. So they have to be full. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I have no fear of the predator because my God is sovereign. And whatever that predator is, I know my sovereign God has his hand on that predator and will not allow that predator to do anything more than God thinks is good for me, ultimate good. I, I have no need to fear tension because it is my God who is, is kind to his sheep and works that Love and unity that should be a part of the church. The, the, the aggravations of life. My God is concerned about your aggravations, my aggravations. Those daily, daily, day-to-day -day grinding aggravations. And if you recognize God is at hand, if you recognize God is sovereign, if you recognize He's a good Savior, Shepherd, He's going to take you through those aggravations. And He's providing you all the spiritual food you need here through the sacraments, through prayer, and through the fellowship of the saints. What a wonderful image. That's the sort of life Jesus came to give. This is the life, the abundant life, that we rest in the Savior, Shepherd, King. And it's spiritual. Yes, it has physical implications. It's spiritual too. And it's eternal what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Whoever believes in Him, the Son, may have eternal life. Go a few verses later in this very chapter of 10, and He says, Jesus says, I give them eternal life that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. That's what Jesus is talking about. Life in its fullest fullest sense, and that's why he came to not only live his life as a human being, but to die. So the next question is, how can it be yours? How can this sort of abundant life be yours? Well, it's simply, in a word, in a name, Jesus. Jesus. It will only come to you, it will only be yours, in and through and by Jesus. Think about the metaphors he's using. And Jesus would have really messed with English teachers here. You know those who say, don't mix your metaphors? 
Jesus, he's having fun mixing his metaphors. He says, I'm the gate, and then I'm the shepherd. I'm the gate, I'm the shepherd. I'm, Jesus, can't you stay on one? He said, no, think about them. Think about both of them. Think about what they can mean. He says, I am the gate. I am the door, doesn't he? Let's think about the uh, Near East and shepherds. Shepherds in the evening would bring their calling, their sheep by name, would bring them and lead them through an opening into a pen. They were serving, in a sense, as the door. And then oftentimes, once those sheep were in the pen, at night, these shepherds would do what? Lie down across the gap. What do doors do? They allow entry into something, and they are protection. Jesus is the entryway, the only entryway, the only door unto the Father. You will not get into the Father's house. You will not get into the Father's family by some other door. There is no other door. The door is Jesus. He's the entryway. But that entryway is also protection. The predators can't get you because Jesus is lying across the gap protecting you. Jesus then moves to um, the image of Good Shepherd. Again, he drives us back to Psalm 23. Jesus is the one who provides rest and nourishment, but he's also the one who guides us. Remember the rest of Psalm 23, or at least a portion of it. He leads me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Jesus is that good shepherd who nourishes, who removes the fears, and that good shepherd who leads us besides still waters, but oftentimes leads us through the valley of the shadow of what? Death. Death. But we have no fear. We should have no fear, no fear of evil. For He is the shepherd who loves us. He is the good shepherd versus the thieves and the hirelings and the wolves of His day. And then the last image that he gives us is given in verses 17 and 18. Notice those. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. He had the authority to, yes, lay his life down. Now, was Judas guilty? Yes. Was Pilate guilty? Yes. Was the, was the, uh, the, the Sanhedrin, was it guilty? Yes. Were the people guilty? Yes. Are we guilty if Jesus is our Lord and Savior for sending Jesus to the cross? Yes, our sins. He went there to bear our sins. But brothers and sisters, he could have chosen otherwise. Chose, he chose, he chose to lay down his life. You say, well, people can 
offer themselves up. They can, you know, snatch somebody out of the road and, and fall into the road themselves and die and save somebody. They can lay down. But can they raise their life up? Jesus can, and Jesus did. This last image is he's the master of life. He's the door, he's the gate, he's the good shepherd, and he's the master of life. And because he is, abundant life can be yours. He said, he came that you might have life. And life what? Abundantly. So how will you respond? First question is, what's he talking about? Second question, uh, how, how is this? How can it be? How can it be ours? Now the third question is, how will you respond? Well, notice how people in Jesus' day responded. Verse 19. It brings us back to what? Division. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to Him? Feel the impact of that. Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus has healed the blind man, right? And the Pharisees hated that, right? And Jesus gives us chapter 10. And then at the end, what happens? Division. Remember, Jesus is also the sword that divides. He always divides. And sometimes He'll divide you from those that you love. If you by grace are trusting in Him and they are not. You, notice in verses 19 through 21, the people only have now two choices. Remember a few sermons ago I said, uh, remember Lewis's dictum? Uh, Jesus is either what? A liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Well, these folk see Him and the first option's gone because he's healed the man. He can see. They only have two options. He's an evil lunatic or he's a loving Lord. Which one will they choose? Which one will you choose? And the last question is, what will be the impact of that choice? If you choose the first answer, evil lunatic, and unless God opens your heart, you stick with that answer, what is the impact of that choice? The impact of that choice is not life and life abundantly. The impact of that choice is death and death eternally. But what if, by grace, you say, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? He's who he says he is. He's the loving Lord. He is the gate. He is the good shepherd. He is the master of life. Will you follow the master of life by being people of life? Will we follow the master of life by being people of life? If we will, by grace, we'll hold to two truths. 
The first truth is that human life is sacred. All of it. We've got that expression, it's gotten kind of trite and corny, but it still, it still works. From womb to what? Tomb. All of life, all of human life, sacred. Because of all human beings do what? They reflect the image of God. They are created in the image of the Almighty. From beginning to end and everything in between. And so that will mean that you uh, put up crosses on a cold January Saturday. It means you will work with a pregnancy resource center or you'll fill baby bottles full of your loose change or you'll do other things that help such ministries to hurting young ladies. It'll mean that you're concerned about the, the child in the womb. That you'll pray today for Debbie Wyatt's son and daughter-in-law who've just lost a baby in the womb. And you'll pray today for Michael and Sarah Hill and that little baby in the womb. But it'll also mean that once a child is born, you'll care about life then too. You'll provide, or you'll help provide meals for hungry children. In the wintertime, when there's a coat drive for those who are in need, you'll purchase coats or provide them. It'll mean that when there are young children whose parents aren't able to, you'll volunteer to be a mentor. It'll mean that this ministry just a couple of blocks up the road, you'll keep in your prayers regularly and you'll help. It means that you will value any and all lives that are downtrodden and face injustices. Not just those that are like you. It'll mean that you and I pray for and help the medical community and our neighbors through this pandemic. It'll mean that you pray for and you work for and you help those whose businesses are on the rocks right now. Particularly when those business owners are helping to provide for their employees so their employees can keep food on the table and pay bills. It means that you'll be concerned about those sort of things. And it means that you'll take opportunities in ways that you can to say hello in there 
Hello. To the lonely and to the shut-in and to those who are despairing of life right now. And as your pastor, I had the privilege yesterday to look through a window at our dear brother Don Liebner, struggling with pneumonia. He could not say more than four sentences. We care, and we should care from the womb to the tomb. If we are followers of the Master of Life, we'll hold that truth, but then we'll hold one more truth. All human life is sacred, but all human beings are sinners. And every single human being needs the Master of Life. If I only give a coat to a child and not tell that child of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, I may be helping that child now, but what am I doing for that child's eternal welfare? Or if I only tell that child, the Lord Jesus loves you, I hope somebody gives you a coat. What am I doing with my witness? Jesus is the gate, the door. Jesus is the good shepherd. And Jesus is the master of life. Now, how will I follow him? And how will you? Let's pray. Lord of life, you came to live and to die and to be resurrected so that we might have life and life abundantly. May we know of that abundant life and it may, may, may it so overflow from our lives into the lives of the needy around us that they see and hear Jesus. And by your grace, come to place their faith and trust in Him. We pray this in His name. Amen.